don't mind, uh, I want you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. And, and again, I thank you for joining us online. Uh, we're going to deep dive uh, through 13 verses on this morning in Matthew chapter 25. And beginning this week, actually, we're going to take a pause for the rest of the year um, in our walk through Exodus. And we're going to spend uh, the next few weeks all the way through Christmas meditating and, and thinking and pondering and mauling over the advent of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Advent means simply arrival, the arrival, the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And you know, when you typically think about Advent, we think about Christmas. When we think about the Advent season, we think about the arrival of Jesus in the form of a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, laying in the manger. And that arrival of Christ to the world is indeed uh, one in which we should place a lot of energy and a lot of focus and a, and, 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 and a lot of thought into during the holiday season uh, because that is indeed the beginning of our beautiful gospel story. But while it is worthy of celebration, it's actually only one part of Advent. Advent is actually not just simply confined to the arrival of Jesus Christ in the form of human flesh. The other part is not nearly talked about enough, not nearly pondered enough, not nearly reflected on enough. The other part is the part that I would like for you to see in this video right now, if Darren and Tyrone, you could cue that up for us. But this is, this is the other part, and it's just as important as the first part. Darren, you can cue it up. We shall be changed in a moment and a twinkling of the eye. Get ready. Get ready. The Lord is coming soon. And it'll be faster than this. You heard me now. Get ready. Get ready. Get ready. Oh, thank you, Lord. Now, while that may be humorous to you, it is indeed humorous to me. There is a deep and abiding truth that is resting in that old soul that was preaching that gospel message about the return of Jesus Christ. And it is this, the return of Jesus Christ is imminent and it is real. It is real. As a kid, as a, as a kid growing up, the preacher always spoke about th this coming, this second arrival, but not anymore. Advent is limited to the first arrival of Jesus. Not much is spoken of when it comes to the second arrival. And so we want to spend some time at the, at the beginning of our Advent season and even through our Advent season meditating on the second arrival. Matthew 25, Jesus starts this parable like he starts many, and this is a parable about the second arrival, but he starts like this, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. This parable is a continuation of, of, of truth that Jesus is unpacking beginning in chapter 24. One of the most important subjects in all of the Bible, his return. Again, it's one of the most important subjects in all of the Bible, yet one of the least discussed subjects in this generation. We no longer discuss the truth about the king's arrival, second arrival. And I hope we begin to unpack why a little bit this morning. You see, the truth is vital, not only 
not only to our understanding of the faith, but the truth is vital in our maturing in the faith. In fact, Paul gives us a glimpse of just how important our hope in Jesus' second arrival is in Colossians chapter 1. In chapter 1, he says in verse 3 through 5, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. Paul connects the faith, the Colossians whole for Jesus Christ and the love that they hold for the church of Jesus Christ with the hope that they have laid up in heaven. In other words, because you know that this is not the end for you and because you live your life in light of Jesus's second arrival, the one that ensures everything will be made right again and the, and the one that ensures that everything will be re restored to its intended order and function. Because you live your life in light of this, your faith in Christ is stronger and your love for his people is deeper. It's important for us to discuss his second arrival because as the truth settles in our hearts by his spirit, our faith grows stronger and our love grows deeper. In fact, this truly is at the heart of Advent. This season is intended to fix your attention and your heart on the second arrival of Jesus Christ. The whole of the Christian life is lived in between the first and the second arrival. The Christian life is a life of waiting, a life of anticipation, and it's important that we are reminded of this truth over and over and over again. This is not the end for us. This life is not the, not the end for us. This is not our home. This story is not yet finished. The brokenness you experience so frequently in your relationships, the divisions that you witness in your home, outside of your home, in your communities, in your cities, in this nation, the daily crimes that you read about on the internet, the routine injustices you see when you turn on your televisions, the pandemic that has taken 270,000 American lives, the sickness that you experience in your body that won't go away, the loss of loved ones, loved mothers, loved fathers, loved children, loved grandchildren. The fatigue of it all can, can often be too much to bear seemingly. If we are not reminded of this truth, this is not the end for us. Advent is intended to remind us of that truth. And Jesus is reminding us of that truth in Matthew chapter 25. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like. For those who don't know, when you hear the kingdom of heaven or you hear the kingdom of God in the gospels, you should not think in terms of a particular place. What Jesus is describing is the reign and rule of God as it is fully realized and consummated. In the same way when you say the U.S. federal government or when you say the Wakandan kingdom, you are not just talking in terms of geography, but you are also speaking politically. 
So it is with the kingdom of God. You are discussing the rule and the reign of God. And so most of these parables that begin with the kingdom of God is like or will be like are pointing to what God's reign looks like in its fullest expression. But also when you hear these words, kingdom of heaven, we must keep in mind that at the center of the kingdom is a king. And that king is Jesus Christ. And not only your king, but as we see here in this parable, a groom. And not only in this parable, but in plenty of places in scripture. You know, coming to America, in the, in the late 90s, there was this movie called Coming to America. In fact, they're coming out with a sequel that's going to be released next next year. But but it was, it was classic comedy, Eddie Murphy, Arsenio Hall, uh, James Earl Jones, and others. And it tells the story of a prince who comes to America concealing his identity as he goes on a search for his bride. He meets and falls in love with a woman, and this woman by the, uh, was, was named Lisa McDowell, and it is only until they are deeply in love that she learns that he is a king. Well, in some sense, the Bible is, the, is that story told in reverse. You see, we have a king, a triune God, who we learn as the story continues to unfold is not only a king, but he's a groom. He's a suitor. We learn that we as a people have been created for him and are being prepared for him to be his bride. Throughout scripture, we see this truth bubbling to the surface. The Old Testament prophets speak of this truth. For example, Hosea in chapter two says in verse 19, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you, I'm sorry, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. The New, the New Testament apostles declared as well, Paul being one of them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. In fact, Paul centers the very institution of marriage in this understanding of Jesus being our groom and the church being his bride. He says in Ephesians 5 that marriage, in fact, is a mystery that is describing and pointing to and rooted in the picture of Christ in his church. Every good marriage, in other words, is giving us a shadow of what it looks like to be loved deeply by Jesus. The Apostle John, as he is describing the end of the age and in the revelation, describes it as a marriage feast. Jesus himself performs his first recorded miracle in the Gospels by turning water into wine at a marriage feast. When the bridegroom is gone, John says in Matthew uh, chapter 9, verse 14 through 15. When the bridegroom is gone, then they will fast. Talking about Jesus. I'm sorry, rather Jesus says that of himself. And so it's the idea that, yes, I'm here now, so that's why you're not fasting, disciples. But when I leave, then you will fast as you await my return. And that time is right now. This period in between the first and the second arrival, this period of an anticipation and waiting. 
Christ comes into the world and he patrols his bride to, 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 to he, he patrols his bride to be. And that is a, an engagement, a, a modern day engagement at a deeper level, at a more, at a more binding level is what, is what that means. Then he leaves to make preparations. To make preparations for her and to make, and the time that, that, that is found in between his first and his second arrival is what this text is about. The period of waiting between engagement and marriage. Most of the time in this wedding metaphor, the church is depicted as the bride. We see this throughout scripture, including the examples I just gave you and read to you. However, in this particular parable, Jesus chooses another picture. He portrays the church as the bridal party. The bride is nowhere to be seen in this text. He has a purpose for that. He wants to communicate a different word to us, a word about waiting and a word about readiness. Matthew 25, verse 1 and 2, it says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. A quick word about parables. The intent of a parable is to use everyday occurrences in our lives to highlight eternal principles, eternal realities and truths. So a parable is a working, a working to highlight the, the, the larger, more important points rather than to be taken literally in all of the smaller points. You, do you understand that? Case in point, in, in this parable, it would be a mistake to look for significant meaning under every single object in the story. That's not Jesus's point in sharing a parable. So we don't have to try and figure out what the torches meant or what the oil meant or why the church is seen as bridesmaids here and, and, and a bride and other parables and metaphors. What we must see, however, is that the, uh, we must see the parable for what it really is. And that is an illustration intended to draw out a greater, more significant truth or truths. So when we read of ten virgins in this parable, Five foolish ones, five wise ones. Or try and force it to have some special significance to the life of the church. It's not intended for us to walk away from this and say, oh, ten virgins, that must mean that there's ten major churches in the world and five of them are false and five of them are true. And when the Lord comes back, he is only going to take half of them back with him and he's going to leave the other half because they are only posing as Christians. This is not intended to be some kind of Bible code that you find in the bottom of a Cracker Jack box. It ain't that deep, fam. When you find people trying to take you that deep, be leery about those people. Instead, when we read about ten virgins, five wise, five foolish, what we should hear is that we have a collective group of women that are invited to participate in this ceremony and have all of the external appearances that indicate they will participate in the ceremony. But only some of them will. And the rest will not because only some of them are wise and the rest are foolish. Anybody live long enough to endure or to hear about rather a wedding when the bride or the groom had to drop a member of the party, unfortunately? Anybody ever been a part of a wedding where the bride or the groom had to drop a member of the party? 
Anybody ever been that person that was dropped? I'm not, I'm not talking about family emergency came up, sudden influx of workload on your job and you just couldn't make the wedding. I'm talking about the person never would get their shoes ordered or the person would never get their measurements for their dress or for their tuxedos. I'm talking about the person insulted the, the, the soon-to-be spouse. Something foolish. The person was late to the wedding and they, and they had to go on with, with, without them. They just had to, come on, let's hurry up, let's just get this wedding over because they're never going to show up. Basically, the level of seriousness and readiness that they possessed was inconsistent with the sacredness of the event that they were invited to participate in. Have you ever seen that happen? Have you ever had the misfortune of being that person? You probably classified it in this following way. Man, that was some foolishness right there. We should have a similar feeling as well as we look to the five foolish in this text. Verse two of chapter 25 says, five of them were foolish, five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. Notice something here. Both wise, both foolish, carry the external appearance of a bridesman. Both wise, both foolish have been invited to participate in this wedding. Both wise, both foolish bring tools to participate in the wedding, their lamps. And yet, only one group of women actually make preparations to participate. One group brings oil for the wait. One group brings nothing for the wait. One group is just present. Another is preparing. You see, the whole of the Christian life is a life of waiting, but it is not merely a passive exercise. It is an active demonstration, an active exercise of waiting. Waiting is more than simply being present. It is preparing. What does it look like to wait foolishly, you may ask? Jesus gives us a glimpse in the parable that precedes this parable in chapter 24, verses 45 through 49, he says, who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is, the, is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants eats and drinks, and eats and drinks with drunkards. Foolishness, beating the servants, eating, drinking with drunkards. You see, the foolish waiting is a life lived exploiting and hating neighbor. The foolish waiting is a life lived feeding our own flesh. It is a life lived loving the world instead of loving God. It is a life lived indulging self instead of uh, delighting in God. You see, you know you are wandering into the foolish posture of waiting during the Advent season when the only thing you can think of in light of Jesus' arrival is how you, how you can fill your own bellies or stock your own stockings. Stockings, rather. 
the wise make provision for sharing with others because their their hearts are consumed with preparation, not for a commercial event, but for a divine arrival. And as Paul says in Colossians, it is this hope that strengthens our faith and deepens our love. This is the difference between foolish and wise. But the foolish life is also a life going through the motions of religion. You see, all 10 women here have been given the sacred sacred responsibility to have light shining at the arrival of the groom. But only five of them actually value the bride, groom, and wedding enough to prepare. Pastor John Piper unpacks this a little bit more in the following quote. He says, five of them did not take seriously their calling to give life. And they neglected the only means by which they could do what they were called to do. They took no oil. They only had lamps. Their job was to provide light, and they had lamps without oil. Candles without wicks. Torches without fire. Light bulbs without electricity. The outward form of religion and no internal power. They liked their position. Otherwise, they would have left. But they did not have passion to use the necessary means to fulfill their point of their position. Light. Their foolishness was to think that the mere form of a religious lamp would be sufficient. End quote. Yes, they valued being a part of the bridal party but they didn't value the bride and the groom enough to prepare to be a part of that party, to be ready, to be shining. They were given an invitation to a royal wedding. They were invited to be participants in a royal wedding, and yet they simply didn't value it. And so they didn't prepare. Saints of God, do you value your invitation to participate? You see, the king has invited you to be a part of his wedding, not because you were the best, not because you were, you, you were the most qualified, because neither of those is likely true. No, the king has invited you to be a part of his royal wedding out of the sheer abundance of his grace, his mercy, his love. Will you value that invitation and shine as you await his return? The wise do. The foolish do not. Verse 5 says they both wait for his arrival. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. First thing I want you to pay attention to is the last thing in the verse. While they waited on the delayed arrival of the bridegroom, they all became drowsy and slept. Rest is not a sign of foolishness or a sign of a lack of preparedness. It is a mark of humanness. Whether you are foolish or whether you are wise, you will have to rest as you wait. God is infinite, brothers and sisters, but we are without a doubt not. In fact, not only is rest 
not a sign of a lack of preparedness. Rest is vital for preparedness. The Lord institutes the Sabbath for us. He says the Sabbath is made for man. The Lord in Psalm 127, 2 says that he grants sleep to those that he loves. At times where he and and, and his disciples were overwhelmed by the demanding crowds, Jesus said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Restfulness is preparedness. This morning I woke up on three hours of sleep and I rolled off the couch to get back to prepping my sermon, getting back to praying and And I just found myself so unfocused, so unable to think, so unable to ponder and meditate and hear from the Lord through his word that, you know what I did? Got back on the couch, went back to sleep. Got another hour under my belt, woke up, and was far more productive. You see, I've heard it said on on numerous occasions throughout my life in ministry by seasoned, wise, seasoned, godly people that sometimes the most godly thing you can do is go to bed because a weary man is oftentimes of less use than a refresh one. Restfulness is preparedness. But also note again, note that again, the bridegroom was delayed. And I asked earlier, why is it that we don't talk about the king's second arrival a lot anymore? And I believe a big reason why is this right here. We stopped deeply believing ourselves that he is in fact coming back because his arrival is delayed. You see, some have even resorted to just holding holding fast to the other teachings of Jesus except for the promise of his return because it's less embarrassing for them. Some of us believe it, but our confidence in it has waned. A lot of the church isn't quite as bold as we used to be or as Sister Gregory um, uh, showed us at the beginning. A lot of us aren't as bold to just go out and say that, yes, he is coming back because we we know that we're going to be met with scoffing and, and mocking. It is so rare in this day and age to hear people say with Jesus, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Why is that? It's because saints waiting can be painful. As we wait, we wait through broken relationships. As as some of you wait, you've waited through abusive marriages. Some of you have waited through abusive upbringing. Some of you have waited through battles with your own sin. Some of you have waited through addiction. Some of you have waited through greed and through lust and through other temptations through jealousy and through envy and through lying. Some of you have waited through suffering. Some of you have waited with illness and pain in your body in in, in what seems like forever, waiting for what seems like forever. And all this waiting can be exhausting and it can be painful and it can rob you of your anticipation and it can rob you of your confidence. It can rob you of your hope. You can get to a place where you no longer want to wait because you don't believe there is anything left to wait for. 
You start looking around and saying, I've waited long enough, and, and that's, where the, that's where the road to indulging ourselves like the foolish bridesmaids begins. We look around and we see a world that at times appears to be descending farther and farther into hell, and we say to ourselves, if there was ever a time for him to come back, it should be now. You know, even 2,000 years ago, though, the Apostle Peter sensed this same frustration. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3 through 9, Peter says, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days. Guess what? With scoffing, he continues, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Again, John Piper points rightly to this scripture and he says that two days have passed away in the kingdom since the Lord declared that he was returning. So even though the pain of waiting is real, hold fast to his promise and make preparations for his arrival. The wise do this. The foolish do not. But notice what happens when he arrives. Verse 6, but at midnight, that is the, that is the end of time, that the end of days, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out and Meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. What happens? He shows up. And the wise are ready for his arrival. The foolish are not. They try to borrow from the wise, but they aren't able to give them any of their oil. They even trim, the, they even trim their wicks. They trim their lamps with no oil in them. Foolishness on top of foolishness. Verse 8 through 9 are not intended to highlight the cruelty of the wise bridesmaids when they say, listen, we don't have any oil for you. That's not the lesson that we should be pulling from this. It's not a lesson in hoarding. 
Rather, the point is, in the last days, we will not be saved on the coattails of the faith of another. We will not ride the coattails of faith of some other person. So your mama raised you in church. That's great. Praise God. So your family, the family you grew up with was a praying family. That's beautiful. Praise God. But in the end, the oil from their light will not be able to be used by you to gain entry into the marriage feast. If you are resting your eternity on the faith of others around you, you are resting it on sinking sand. A saving faith must also be our own faith. D.A. Carson says of this text that the foresight and the preparedness of the wise virgins cannot benefit the foolish virgins when the eschatological crisis dawns. Preparedness can neither be transferred nor shared. They try to prepare, but it's too late. The opportunity has been missed. They even leave in search of oil, but by the time they return, the doors have been shut. So many people think that the Christian faith is like a switch that they can turn on at the very last minute. They tell themselves that I'll get right. I'll get right. That I'll, that I'll trust Jesus. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll start going to church. I'll, I'll submit my life to him one day. And they get warning after warning. Family is sharing the gospel with them. Friends and coworkers are sharing the gospel with them. They hear preachers on TV sharing the gospel, preachers on the radio and on the internet sharing the gospel. Or perhaps they've lived years of their life going through the motions in church, but completely void of a transformed heart. And they just figured that in the end, right before they close their eyes on their sick belt, they'll, they'll, they'll be able to get right with God. That's one possibility, saints. But the other possibility is found in verse 12, where Jesus answers, the groom answers, truly I say to you, I do not know you. You see, verse 12 is not a rejection of, of people who were living a life of salvation and just in a moment, a moment of weakness got caught slipping. That's not the picture that Christ is intending to paint. Rather, it is a picture of a life that carried a form of preparation but was actually void of any real life of preparation. They looked the part. They went to church. They labored diligently. They gave consistently. They were invited to the wedding. They had the bridesmaid uh, attire. They had the equipment, and yet they were void of light. They were void of shining. There was no true wonder in the gospel residing in them. They were not amazed by it. They were not humbled by it. It was only a means to an end, maybe to be more respected, maybe to be more disciplined in life, maybe to receive the respect of their Christian parents or Christian family or Christian friends. But in the end, they were empty. They were foolish. They were lightless. And they were left outside.
you know, as you think about waiting, I can't help but think about a, 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 a very vivid memory in my life. Um, I talked, I, I shared with you guys last week about the very first time me and my wife went out on a, on a date. Well, eventually me and my wife got married. Surprise, right? And at this wedding that me and my wife uh, shared together, a lot of great friends were, were present. The wedding was beautifully decorated. She looked stunning. I was nervous as a live pig at a barbecue competition. We had, we had beautiful singing and, 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 and beautiful pictures, lots and lots and lots of pictures. We took pictures before the ceremony. We took pictures after the ceremony, but it was the pictures after the ceremony that, that, that really were the most alarming to me. Not because the poses were bad, the poses were beautiful, not because the photographer was bad, he was great. One reason alone that I was concerned, we had a reception to attend. And we just could not stop taking pictures. We took picture after picture after picture. We took pictures inside the church. We went outside the church and took pictures. Minute after minute turned into an hour. And I was excited. I was filled with joy. I was captivated by this wife that I've been newly joined to. And yet I couldn't help but wonder, what are the people at the reception doing right now? Are they getting anxious? Are they preparing to leave? Are they rushing the buffet table and threatening our volunteer serving staff of family and friends who were simply chipping in out of the abundance of their hearts to, to serve and contribute to this, to this wedding? You see, waiting is hard, saints especially when there is a reward that you are anticipating on the other side, and that is the food. 15 minutes is reasonable, 30 minutes is tolerable, but borderline. When you start creeping into an hour, you start sensing frustration in the room. Is this reception still happening? Are we still going to eat? Do they even care that we're waiting? Is this food and celebration even worth waiting for? Should we just leave and go to McDonald's? All of those wanderings are understandable, but none of them were actually true. You see, the food and celebration was worth waiting on. We had some bomb food at our wedding. Great food at our wedding. Generosity of family and friends made it happen, and we had plenty of it. And we absolutely cared and knew that they were waiting. In fact, we were trying our best to rush through the process of taking pictures so that we can join the reception. And most importantly, yes, the reception was, in fact, still going to happen. Though delayed, it was going to happen. Do you know why? Because we paid for it. It had to happen. We couldn't let that deposit slide. Couldn't let all that food go to waste. Couldn't let the band that we paid for, we couldn't let all of that go to waste. We had, we, that reception was going to happen because we put the deposit down for the reception to happen. Saints of God, Jesus is worth waiting for. Because unlike the others that came before him or even after him professing to be God, Jesus sealed this promise in his very own blood. He died the death that you and I deserve. And upon his shoulders, the wrath of God was poured out in order that any man or woman that would trust him and turn from their life of sin would be found not guilty. Saints of God, Jesus's blood was a deposit on the promise. 
you know that the promise will be fulfilled because he literally deposited his own life and body on the fulfillment of the promise. The wedding feast, the marriage feast will take place. Does the bridegroom delay? Yes. Do we know when he's coming? No. But do we know that he is coming without a doubt? How do we know? Because he paid for this wedding with his very own blood. He paid for this reception with his very own blood. And so we know that the reception will happen. And when it does, it will be better than we ever anticipated. It will be more joyous than we could ever imagine. The food will be spectacular. The wine will be unbelievable. The dancing and the music will be unreal. It will be everything that we ever imagined and hoped for. And so saints of God, fix your hope and your attention on this truth. This is what Advent means. So let our hearts let our hearts dig deep into this reality this December, this December. Meditate on this truth this December. Pray over this truth this December. And may it mature us as Christians as we go into the world to do our Lord's bidding. Would you pray? God, we love you.